Welcome to the College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. Here's Bobak Hayeri. Hey, everybody. It might be the offseason, but this is a sport that never entirely quiets down, especially now that Jim Harbaugh, as widely expected, has opted to return to the NFL, taking the head coaching position with the L.A. Chargers. Welcome to the College Football Survivor Show, where we are all about the competition to be the eventual college football playoff champion. I'm Bob Ekayeri, flying solo today, as my co-host Shahan Raja is on leave. He's a now a new father. We wish him well. As someone who's gone through that, all I say is, <laughs> just wait. But we'll see him again soon. You can find us, as always, on X and TikTok at CFB Survivor Show, where we have video highlights of the show, run polls, and listen to your feedback. Please, if you get a chance, take a moment to like, rate, and subscribe to us wherever you get your shows. We enjoy your reviews. If they're interesting, we might even get to talk about them on here. So heading into this offseason, there was a strong belief Jim Harbaugh was going to seriously look at the NFL and likely take a job there. We'll get into the reasons why in a moment. But before we even got to that point, before we really even had a chance to, to breathe after the national championship game, Nick Saban announced his retirement and kicked off a whole series of events. We even had a whole previous show on that topic. In fact, it's interesting when you take a look at what's happened over the past couple of weeks, three of the four college football playoff teams have had now head coaching changes. Saban retired, DeBoer left Washington to take his place at Alabama, and Jim Harbaugh is now off to the NFL. It leaves Steve Sarkeesian as a monument to consistency in this high-speed era. But now we're back to the topic we thought we were going to be on. Harbaugh's out, and we're going to do a fairly quick show about it. We're going to break this into four sections. First, we're going to look at the situation as it is now. Um, and it is a somewhat fluid situation, particularly with what's going on at Michigan as we record this. I'm going to take a brief review of how Harbaugh reached the pinnacle of college football coaching success. We're going to then look at what he's built at Michigan and the legacy he's leaving for whoever takes over. And then finally, we're going to take a quick look at what's coming next for the Wolverines, at least as of this time, which is a little bit past noon Eastern on uh, Thursday, the January 25th. So let's take a look at the situation as it is now. Yesterday, Wednesday, January 24th, rumors broke in the late afternoon from sources in the NFL that Jim Harbaugh was going to be hired as the next head coach of the L.A. Chargers. And I'll try not to call them San Diego Chargers. Uh, some old habits die hard. Harbaugh had interviewed with the team twice. The NFL is super transparent about that, which is a nice thing compared to the college football world. So you know what's happening at all times, at least in these job hunts. They were not the only team to show interest in Harbaugh in this cycle. There were questions as to whether he would be in the running for the Raiders job, and he did interviews with the Atlanta Falcons. This, again, was not the first time Harbaugh had flirted with the NFL. I mean, two years ago, the Minnesota Vikings seemed to be considering him strongly as a finalist for that head jo for that um, job opening. And last season, the Broncos also showed interest in Harbaugh, but he stayed. Um, and this time, heading into the NFL, he's going to get a significant pay increase. It's rumored to be close to $18 million a year, above what was thought to be an estimated $12 million per year in a contract had he stuck with the Wolverines. Um, although, to be fair, when we're talking $18 million versus $12 million, moving from Ann Arbor to Los Angeles, I love L.A., but that might, oh, may cover the cost of living difference between those two cities. 
So meanwhile, uh, we got confirmation a little later in the evening. Uh, there was a release from Michigan, both from the president, but also Michigan AD Ward Manuel. In that release, he noted, uh, Manuel noted that Jim did exactly what he sought to do at Michigan, build our program to consistently win Big Ten championships and compete for national championships, culminating with a record three straight outright conference titles and the national championship this year. He did the same off the field by graduating his players and providing life experiences through mentorships, internships, and team trips around the globe. Manuel went on to say, we have been discussing a new contract that would make Jim the highest paid coach in college football. In the end, he wanted to explore and ultimately decided to pursue a return to coaching in the NFL. He will always be a huge part of our rich history and will be remembered as an all-time great Wolverine, both a championship player and coach. He also noted, and I think this is something to uh, to compliment Harbaugh, at least in his transparency in all of this. Manuel noted that he will, uh, pardon me, Jim has always been extremely upfront with his communication regarding NFL opportunities and has been helpful with his transition in leadership. And of course, he went on to say they're going to do their best to keep the current staff and team together. So that finalized it even before the Chargers officially announced it. The uh, The Wolverines confirmed that he was leaving Something that might get lost in all of this hullabaloo about his departure to the NFL is Michigan had actually uh, acceded to one of his more notable requests. Would he had would he have remained? Because there was ongoing negotiations on Harbaugh's contract. Should he stay with Michigan? And one of the blocks or one of the, the, the notable points of contention was whether Michigan would be willing to grant him immunity from termination if he were found to be liable in two of the ongoing NCAA investigations into the program. Now, I'll just go over those really quickly. Somehow you haven't been paying attention to the college football season, especially if you're listening to this show in the offseason. You probably are a fairly serious college football fan. The Obviously, the first one is the one that led to the three-game suspension that began the season, and that was regarding alleged recruiting violations during the COVID-19 dead period. It's kind of become known as the cheeseburger case, but what it was really about was Harbaugh was being charged about violating, uh, they were level one violations for potentially misleading investigators. That whole thing has been moved into presumably this year, uh, where they're going to finally hear it. Um, it was kind of a funny story, only because the NCAA vice president, Derek Crawford, gave a very amusing statement in the offseason of last year, uh, making it clear that this case is, quote, not about a cheeseburger. So that only hammered the fact that this is now known as the cheeseburger case. The other one, the better known NCAA investigation, is into the Connor Stallions sign stealing uh, case. The Big Ten had already imposed that three-game suspension, which ended the regular season for the Michigan Wolverines. Um, they agreed then to set it aside. Now it's in the NCAA arena. So once again, it is TBD. This year, next year, the wheels of NCAA justice move quite slowly. There was a risk that would make him and the uh, Michigan Wolverines a, quote, repeat violator, which can cause some more severe sanctions. Throughout all of this, it was quite clear that the uh, the school, the president, the athletic director, and the coach were all just going to get past this. You know, not ignore it, but make sure it gets moved through the um, through the wheels of justice slowly into the next season, so that the team could focus on this year. And one of the things I have said before, to the credit of Michigan this season, is their ability to stay focused despite all of this stuff uh, happening off the field. I mean. 
It has, I cannot think of a situation where head coach has been suspended for six games in a season um, with four other coaches stepping in at one point or another as an interim head coach to go 15-0 and win it all. So the reason all of this was coming into this coaching negotiation was the NCAA passed a rule that did not get much attention until it came into force a year ago, January 1st, 2023. There's now a coach responsibility provision, which makes a head coach responsible for level one violations that occur through anybody in their staff. Now, this originally started as it's understood, because of issues in basketball. The head coach would say, oh, I didn't know we bribed a player. I didn't know we did something wrong. It was one of my assistants that did it, and it would be that kind of plausible deniability that kind of made people raise their eyebrows. Those staffs were quite small, so it seemed absurd that those head coaches didn't know what was going on. Now, applying it to a college football program, particularly a P5, or I should say P4, blue blood program like Michigan with a staff that easily could get close to 100 people to expect the head coach knows everything that's going on with every staffer seemed a little bit rough. And why that came into play here, historically, a lot of these contracts, including Harbaugh's contract with Michigan, said that uh, it included a so-called strict liability clause if he were given a four-cause termination. So in other words, it's boilerplate language that coaching contracts say that the coach could be fired if they committed an NCAA violation. Now, as we just said, if you have a staffer, and I'm not saying that's exactly what happened in the Connor Stallions case. I'm just going to say that. We're going to talk more theoretical here. If you have a staffer that you really aren't in that close contact with due to however the hierarchy is in your organization, and they commit a level one violation, under the new rules that were went into effect in January of 2023, you too committed a level one violation. And under some of these head coaching contracts, you can be terminated for cause and they don't have to pay your severance. That's a bone of contention that a lot of agents and a lot of head coaches have been now negotiating in a lot of their new contracts. So he wanted, and I believe this was broken by Yahoo a few weeks ago, he wanted to add the idea that if such a thing were to occur, an NCAA violation would be ruled against him. A three-person panel in Michigan would then have to rule whether or not it is enforceable against him and his contract. So he basically wanted to create an option for the school to ignore the NCAA violation in terms of his uh, employment status at the university. I think we're going to see more of those. And that was something that he had been negotiating. And then apparently Michigan acceded to it mere hours before he took the Chargers job. There's been some question if that was intentional on the part of Michigan, whether some people in Michigan just didn't want him to return. I'm going to say that's unlikely in my opinion. I mean, the guy just won a national championship. He is a beloved coach. Um, whether or not he can maintain the level of success in the next following few seasons was an interesting question we'll get to in a moment. But certainly it seemed like um, that was something that uh, you know would have been nice, but ultimately in the end of it, it seems like he wanted to move on. Um, you know, it is notable to say that some people have asked, was the NCAA pressure getting to Harbaugh? Did he want to leave Michigan while the getting was good before the hammer of the NCAA came down at all? That's happened before. I mean, you know, Jim Tressel was pushed out of Ohio State because of some of the seemingly quaint things that occurred under his tenure, like Tattoo Gate. Um, now that would not be a problem at all under the current NCAA rules. Some people might make a comparison to when Pete Carroll left USC. Some people thought, 
you know, with the Reggie Bush stuff that was going on that he left before the hammer came down. I'm going to say, and I've said this before, I don't believe that was the case in that situation. And although their personalities are quite different, Harbaugh and Carroll have one thing in common, and both of them had a fairly transparent desire to get back to the NFL, not because they didn't like coaching college, but because they felt like they had unfinished business. Uh, obviously, Carroll went back to the NFL under his own terms. He had suitors year after year and finally found a situation with the Seahawks, which recently let him go, but was able to go there, run the team his way, and finally win a Super Bowl. Harbaugh himself, in his four years with the uh, San Francisco 49ers, went to the playoffs three times, made it to the Super Bowl, lost to his brother, and clearly wants to go back there and have another go, especially now that he's achieved what he set out to at Michigan. So with all of this said, I wanted to take a second to take a look at how he got to the pinnacle of college football now that we are seeing him return to the NFL. I mean, he was obviously a player at Michigan who went and played in the NFL. In fact, he wrapped up his career with the Chargers back when they were in San Diego, backing up Brian Leaf and getting in at least, I believe, 11 games playing for them while he was still a player in the NFL. And I, again, I think he's always had an eye on coaching. He was helping his dad a bit. Um, his dad was, of course, at the time, the head coach of then FCS Western Kentucky. And he was helping his dad as an NCAA certified unpaid assistant coach, recruiting, helping recruiting players that ended up helping his dad win the FCS national championship in 2002. He did a brief stint as an NFL assistant and then took on a fairly tough job. I mean, there's jobs in college football that are easier starts than others. Um, Seeing, for example, Trent Dilfer take the head coaching job at UAB after coaching a few high school teams, that was a bit of a surprise, but at least you're at an FBS program. There's opportunities. There's, there's, a, there's a good program there that had been built up by Bill Clark. Um, he was stepping into a nicer situation there. Harbaugh stepped into the University of San Diego. Not a terrible school, but they are an FCS program that is non-scholarship. They play in the Pioneer Football League. He stepped in there, and with the restrictions and their ability to recruit from a limited talent pool, built them into a winner. They actually had remarkable, in his three, three seasons there, he got them into a top championship conference team. They didn't play in the playoff at that time. They weren't in the FCS playoff, so they were just going for that conference title. He won two conference back-to-back -back championships, and from there, Stanford hired him. Now, at that time, I was pretty passionate about college football, even in those days. And I remember where Stanford was. Stanford was truly at the bottom of their, their years in the last, in, gosh, in the last 20, 30 years. Tyrone Willingham had left to become the head coach of Notre Dame, and they had back-to-back -back bad coaching hires. Buddy Tevens, rest in peace, he did great at Dartmouth, as it turned out. But when he was at Stanford, nice guy for three years, they, they just kind of, we watched Stanford descend. Then they tried to go in another direction. They hired Walt Harris, who had previously been at, uh, the head coach over at Pitt. He managed to crater that team. They went five and six and then one and 11, and they fired him after two seasons. And they decided to go after a coach who, at the time, some people were wondering, why do you go to an FCS non-scholarship football program? Jim Harbaugh managed to sell them on him as their next head coach. I was a little worried as a fan of a rival Pac-10, Pac-10, Pac-10 school, um, rest in peace, Pac. Uh, <laughs> but he was a guy that we were all concerned about because he managed to do a lot with little. And lo and behold, that first season at Stanford, 
that 2007 season, which was chaotic all around, he goes into the L.A. Coliseum and upsets the number one USC Trojans. And let's be clear, Stanford went into that game one and three. They had their backup quarterback, and he managed to rally those guys into one of the greatest upsets of all time. And from that 2007 start, he got Stanford rolling. I mean, they culminated in that incredible 2010 season where they went 12-1, and won the Orange Bowl. They had a couple of great players there. Running back Toby Gerhardt was a Heisman Trophy finalist in a that's one of the most that that may be the most controversial Heisman vote ever. I mean, it was the closest vote to Mark Ingram. Um, a lot of folks thought Gerhardt was a bigger part of his team and the reason Stanford was getting where they did. And then, of course, he got Andrew Luck, that incredible quarterback who also was a Heisman runner up. So from there, he departed, went to the 49ers. I just briefly talked about it earlier. Good three seasons, three different playoff runs had a Super Bowl loss to his brother, and then the NFL can be pretty merciless, so they pushed him out after year four, which was an eight and eight season. Then we get to Michigan. Now, some of you may not have been around, uh, or at least paying attention to college football during that run up to his hire to join the Wolverines. That was a moment of extreme hype in college football. It was it seemed like the because, again, you have to remember where Michigan was at that time, because they had been in their own wilderness after Lloyd Carr retired. It, you know, he had had a share of the 1997 title. And I'm going to just say that was one of the most controversial national titles ever. I mean, some people thought Tom Osborne was being rewarded with the coaches poll national championship in 97. But we'll set that aside. Carr himself stepped down, uh, retired on his own terms. They decide to go in a different direction. They hire Rich Rodriguez right after he nearly made it into the BCFs championship in that crazy 2007 season. He was the number two West Virginia Mountaineers. They just fell in their their final game against rival Pitt. Um, that departure angered a lot of people at West Virginia and was met coolly at Michigan because I think a lot of there was a lot of concern that hiring Rich Rod was going to take Michigan in maybe too different of a direction. Um, I know Carr himself wasn't necessarily thrilled about it. There was a whole question of whether or not Michigan should have hired a so-called Michigan man. Um, he was fired after only three seasons. They had a new AD, Dave Brandon, the CEO who had been CEO of Domino's um, and uh, went on to be the CEO of Toys R Us when they went bankrupt. But they decided to go in a different direction. They hired a business person to be their athletic director. And he hired Brady Hoke, who had turned around Ball State and had turned around uh, San Diego State. He was a guy who had Michigan ties. He'd been a coach under Lloyd Carr. He started out strong. It seemed like, yes, the Michigan man is exactly what we're looking for. But then petered out after four seasons. And again, he was let go. So at this moment, this moment of time is when Michigan suddenly realized we might be able to bring Jim home. And there was a lot of hype because, again, he had risen Stanford. He had built them up into a, a solid program. He had been a good NFL coach. Most people were willing to look past that final season because, again, you know, one bad season after four does not seem to be all that bad. But again, it's the NFL. They hired him. It was ballyhooed. They brought him in. And then the hype machine began because, I mean, he was a quote machine. How many different quotes of Jim Harbaugh have we heard? You know, chickens are nervous birds is still one of my favorites, you know, uh, attacking each day with an enthusiasm unknown to mankind. My favorite Jim Harbaugh quote, I'll just get this one out there. If worms had machine guns, then birds would not be scared of them. 
I mean, he just, he had that ability, that kind of quirkiness, you know, even in recruiting. I remember early on, people were talking about the fact that like, you know, one of the recruits said, yeah, he offered, Jim offered to do a sleepover with me. He had that, that pension for loving milk and steak. Um, he did interesting ideas to kind of compete with the SEC and get some recruits in areas that Michigan was, was struggling with and fighting with. He had this concept of satellite camps, doing them in SEC country, bringing players to, to meet the coaches and do camps with the coaches down south. He did send some of his coaches to recruit in Australia at one point. I mean, all of these kinds of wacky ideas that were both, you know, different. They certainly ruffled feathers. A lot of the SEC coaches were not happy with Harbaugh doing this. And then James Franklin followed him and did some Penn State camps in that same area. Um, that kind of thinking was a very interesting splash. I mean, he did Gosh, those international trips, some of you may remember. He took the whole team to Italy. Uh, so they would do spring practices there, but at the same time do cultural visits. I I personally love trips like that. I think they're wonderful, only because I want to remind people these are young men who oftentimes, you know, their athletic ability helped them get into college and is going to potentially get them to the NFL. But they're still young people. They're still people who can live and benefit from seeing the world. So the idea of taking them to Italy, I thought that was lovely. And some people were concerned, where was the money coming from? It turned out it was some of their biggest donors. I mean, Activision Blizzard, their then CEO, helped fund that international trip and paid it for him so that they could give the players that opportunity and create that happier team. That was the honeymoon period. Although there were quirks from the beginning, even there, the hype train for hiring Jim Harbaugh. I mean, Fox Sports went all in. They created a bus. They nicknamed it the Harbus. They painted it to look kind of like Jim Harbaugh, not with a face, but they made the bus look like it was wearing khakis. They had a bunch of interns that they nicknamed the Harbros that were wearing khakis and again, dressing exactly like Jim Harbaugh. That This hype train arrived opening game, the 2015 season. In Salt Lake City, only to watch Michigan lose to Utah in their opener. But the, the hype train continued. And then over a few years, it stagnated a little bit. Michigan was doing all right. You know, again, he opened 10 and 3, 10 and 3, 8 and 5. Things got a little weird, 10 and 3. And then during all of this period, Michigan wasn't beating Ohio State. Um, they just couldn't get over that hump. And while they were doing fine, they were not competing to be the Big Ten champion. They were not competing for a national championship. Michigan just looked like they were a solid team, um, but not one that the team that fans had hoped for. And they kept looking at problems with the hire. I mean, they were paying the man $8 million at one point uh, and during this period of time when they weren't necessarily getting the return on investment. The quirkiness that so many had talked about started to get a little old. It cratered in the 2020 season. At that point, during the pandemic, Michigan went two and four. Things looked really bad. There was a question of whether he would be retained. And in all of this, there was a moment that was, I think, been much talked about. He was willing to take a pay cut to stay the head coach of Michigan. His head coaching salary dropped from $8 million to $4 million, with a lot of incentives that if he were to return Michigan to glory, they, the salary would quickly go back up. That was the moment, that was the turning point. And then we got the third period, the one we are wrapping up right now, Michigan's rise to success. We've talked a lot about those final three seasons, um, three different victories against Ohio State, two, three different playoff visits. Um, the first two obviously ended in losses in the semifinal, the first one in 2021. Michigan found that the team they built to beat Ohio State 
wasn't necessarily ready to take on Georgia, and they lost that game pretty handily. The next season, they beat Ohio State in 2022, went to the playoff, and TCU pulled, I'd say, arguably an upset with a couple of mistakes by J.J. McCarthy, who didn't necessarily play all that awful. Uh, They weren't able to make it. And then finally this season, it all came together. They beat Ohio State, they won the Big Ten, and they managed to win the semifinal, which arguably was a triumph in and of itself, and do what they do and take out Washington in the national championship to be the 2023 national championships. Obviously, we've acknowledged at the beginning, there's a couple of controversies that are going on off the field. The entire question over the uh, the potential deception during the COVID-19 uh, recruiting period, the Connor Salian stuff. Honestly, in the end, I don't think Michigan fans and I don't think a lot of college football fans are going to look back and care all that much about those factoring into this national title season. I think what brought him here is what got him the title. I don't think personally the uh, the sign stealing changed many of the results on the field. The talent was there. They were able to make it work and the system finally clicked. So that brings us to where what he's built and what he's leaving behind. Harbaugh notably brought Michigan into a return to more of an old style of football. It's run heavy. It's physical on the line, playing excellent defense. I know my colleague Shahan's been happy to break a lot of that down in some of our previous shows. But again, using less of the spread that had been going all around college football and focusing on making a quarterback and a a very talented quarterback in J.J. McCarthy part of an entire team. Um, They did try new things at one point. Of course, Josh Gaddis was their offensive coordinator and did quite well. He won the Broyles Award a couple of seasons ago um, before he departed and was replaced by Moore. Um, But again, it was a bit of an offense like what he built at Stanford, but with the Michigan level of talent, which could make results. And not to say that Michigan is. It's not like we're talking about a school that's easy to necessarily get into. But Stanford has always had that extra restriction on who they can recruit. And with the, the, the freer sense of what was available at Michigan, they were able to develop something that was tremendous there. And we'll talk about what's left in the next segment. But I just want to take also a moment to talk about now that he's gone, who's going to benefit the most? I think Ohio State certainly is the leader in the bullpen. Um, uh, With what they've done in the last couple of weeks, there's been a lot talked about what's going on with Ryan Day's Ohio State program. They have absolutely one at recruiting, one in the transfer portal. It seems like they are going to be what used to be joked, the February national champion for who they've assembled into that program. Some have wondered, is is Jim Harbaugh now scared of them or is he leaving? I doubt that. I highly doubt that. Um, But again, it just... Ohio State is now in a position with the the team they've built up, the fact that Harbaugh's no longer going to be there, the fact that this Michigan team was built around a lot of senior leadership, a lot of guys that were expected to leave for the NFL draft, like J.J. McCarthy. They're not going to be the same stockpile of talent they were in previous years. This is the season where we're going to see whether or not Ohio State is going to, to, to break through. Now, this isn't going to be a show that we're centered on Ohio State. We're going to certainly talk about them a lot more going into this offseason, heading into next season as, as the college football survivor show runs its next season. But I just wanted to acknowledge they're probably the biggest winner in all of this. Penn State, James Franklin's always had problems with two teams, Ohio State and Michigan. Now Michigan seems a little bit weaker, and that'll be one potentially less team for him to worry about. We'll see how that transition goes. Michigan State, obviously now they got Jonathan Smith. That, their rival now looks like 
their rival Michigan now looks like they're going to be a little bit um, in some uncertainty. They stand to benefit. Certainly the rest of the Big Ten and friends are a little bit more relieved to see him out there. I do wonder if um, some of the beat writers in Michigan who have been uh, constantly dealing with the circus around uh, Jim Harbaugh in the lean years, in the good years. There's always a lot going on there. They might be somewhat relieved to be able to change what they're writing about for a little while. And then, you know, let's let's go back in history. Maybe the, the one person to benefit the most of Jim Harbaugh leaving Michigan is Fielding Yost, because that classic Michigan head coach can still remain there as potentially the best head coach in Michigan history. Um, Harbaugh is arguably the most successful head coach in the modern history of Michigan football. All respect to Lloyd Carr, but what he did there and that that shared national championship was not quite this this buildup from a team that had somewhat reached the bottom of their recent history after that one-two punch of Rich Rod and Brady Hoke to be built up over nine years into a, a team that was really successful for three years and then reached that top and rang that bell at the national championship this month. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line. Now let's take a second to look at what's next for the Wolverines. So there's some coaches that are Assumed to be leaving with Jim Harbaugh. Um, I've seen reported online one of those folks, John U. Bacon, who is an author who has written about Jim Harbaugh, who knows the program quite well. His belief is defense coordinator Jesse Minter and uh, safeties and special teams coach, as well as his son, Jay Harbaugh, are likely to join Jim at the L.A. Chargers. Uh, Jesse Minter is a big loss for Michigan, obviously, as I mentioned. Part of what this made this Michigan team so successful was that incredible defense they had. And losing Jesse Minter is going to be a big loss. Some people would have considered him potentially. Uh, uh, he coached the first game this season during Harbaugh's absence. But it appears he's going to depart. Strength and condition coach Ben Herbert is likely to stay. And that was also reported by John Bacon. Why is that important? Well, let's talk about, and this is something I should probably mention a little earlier, the way Harbaugh built this team has been different than what we're seeing around college football right now. He isn't going the route of the top recruiting teams like Saban at Alabama. When we'll see if they continue that Kirby smart at Georgia, Ryan day at Ohio state, these programs that recruit the very, very best raw talent at the high school level. And then you can develop them, but they're already at a level of talent that is, is striking and allows you to compete for the national championship year after year. One of the most notable things about this recent national championship is Michigan and Washington, neither teams were recruiting quite at that level. But how did Michigan get into the national championship if they hadn't? They were doing a good job of, of building the talent they already had. They were playing to their strengths. Their strength and conditioning was doing a tremendous job, making them physical and able to play the type of game that Jim Harbaugh had them playing there. They didn't try to over-rely on the portal because clearly the portal is another factor in all of this. We've seen how it can change teams overnight. I mean, Washington, for its strengths, also benefited from guys like Penix being on the roster. You know, we've seen teams like probably uh, USC nearly made it into the, the college football playoff two seasons ago after a, a couple of great transfer portal victories. Michigan was built more in a classical way, building that up. So being able to retain guys like your strength and conditioning coach is tremendous. Then obviously, Sharon Moore is expected to stay as well and, and potentially be the next head coach. We'll get to that in a second. 
One of the other changes that's happening is the talent in the cupboard. As expected, even before the season, they're losing a ton. They're losing J.J. McCarthy. He declared to go in the draft. That was expected, as we talked about earlier on in this show. He's, despite the fact that they never really relied on him as heavily as most teams do their quarterback, um, he's considered a, a highly regarded NFL prospect in this particular class. Running back, uh, pardon, running back like Corum is taking off as well. He's going to the NFL. Wide receiver Roman Wilson. Guard Zach Zinter, defensive tackle Chris Jenkins, defensive back Mikey Sanders still, quarterback Josh Wallace. They're losing a lot of talent. They're also keeping some, notably running back Donovan Edwards. He did not have the strongest season this year, especially after how well he did in 2022. But during the national championship game, he came back in force. He had two 40-plus run, 40-plus uh, yard touchdown runs. He really was a tremendous force in that national championship game. He's going to return and presumably be the featured back. He's going to be joined by tight end Colston Loveland, another big receiver for the uh, the Wolverines, as well as incredible defensive lineman Mason Graham and cornerback Will Johnson. So there is going to be some talent left over for whoever is an ex-coach. Some have wondered how much this uh, timing of Jim Harbaugh deciding to leave the Wolverines was coordinated with his realization that he was going to have to build the talent pool back up leaving this was the, this was the team he had been spending all of this time building up that's a good question i'm not sure certainly if you're going to leave a team if you're going to retire or if you're going to just move on you want to do it on your own terms saban retired on his own terms obviously a few weeks ago here harbaugh i think realized after 9 seasons you know two different i mean heading into this season i beat ohio state twice i made it to the playoff twice however this season goes this is going to be my strongest team I think this is as good a time as any then seriously look at the NFL. I think that was probably one of the bigger motivations in his departure. Um, there has been some scuttlebutt. I'm not sure if I would put too much sense in it that he delayed this decision to move to the NFL, at least in this cycle since the national championship to sort of play with the uh, transfer portal a little bit, because as of this point, the moment he leaves the transfer portal, portal opens up for a 30-day window for Michigan players who decide now is the time they'd like to leave. They maybe were very close to Harbaugh, and this is not, they would like to maybe take a look around. Certainly, we saw what happened with Alabama. Quite a few of their players decided once Saban was gone, they were gone. Um, maybe they also saw what Kalen DeBoer and his staff was bringing in. They didn't think they would fit. We'll see if Michigan players have that, but the question is, this far into the offseason, this far into the academic calendar, so many of these teams have already gone through the regular portal period and then maybe had a few picks from some of these teams that have freed up in the, the Saban, Washington, uh, uh, Arizona, San Jose State chain that suddenly opened up with that firing period. How many spaces are even going to be available for potential Michigan departures? We'll see. But certainly, there's another transfer portal window coming in the spring. We'll see which Michigan players based on what they see, decide to stay put, which ones move on, um, and who Michigan and who the next head coach of Michigan decides they would like to bring in as a uh, sort of a Band-Aid or a temporary fix as they develop the roster on the Wolverines heading into next season. And that brings into the big question, who is going to replace Jim Harbaugh? There's a bit of a quirk here because they're the way Michigan has to do their hiring process, there's going to be roughly, it's been, I've seen a couple of numbers, seven to 10 day window, where as a public university job, they need to post it for a week and allow people to apply to it. Um, I'm sure there'll be a lot of jokey applications that no one will pay attention to, but there'll be an opportunity for people to look into it. But 
All of that said, the odds-on favorite from every source, this is Sharon Moore's job to lose. He's by far the shoe-in, it seems, um, you know, for all the reasons. I mean, he coached four of the games this season. He stood in as the head coach. He coached Michigan during two of its hardest games, Penn State and Ohio State, and he got victories in both. He gets the offense. Um, he balanced three of the most difficult jobs at once in those games because not only was he coaching the offensive line, which is one of the more complicated things to coach because you've got those five guys on the field. He was the offensive coordinator, one of the most active one of the most active coaches on the field, and he was acting as head coach in those four games. That is a tremendous load. He showed growth in those times. I mean, the first game he coached was that Bowling Green game, which was surprisingly one of Michigan's weakest games where J.J. had a couple of he had three of his interceptions in one game. He didn't have many interceptions, and three of them came against Bowling Green. Um, when he came back to coach against Penn State, he famously went directly to the run to finalize the game. I mean, how many of those final plays were run plays run by Michigan to, to take out Penn State? Maryland game, the thing got a little wonky. Michigan looked a little weak. They looked a little unbalanced in their game, but they managed to pull that out. And then going into the Ohio State game, they went to a balanced offense. They created uh, offense with tricks. There was a great halfback pass from Donovan Edwards, and he went three for three on fourth down calls as a head coach. It showed a growth as a head coach in a position in an extremely high-stress situation. Um, there was a famous post-game interview where he, uh, Moore showed a little bit of emotion, talking about how much he loved Harbaugh, tearing up. I mean, that was... That was show a professional showing the emotion he had, letting it go at the end of the game. I do not fault any man for doing that because he kept it together in game time. He won the game and won the games when he needed to. Um, he seems to be the odds-on favorite. Now, I will acknowledge there are legitimate critiques to going in that direction. I'm not saying they're even specifically about Moore himself, but the idea that you're jumping an offensive coordinator, a coordinator into the head coaching position while he has the additional bonus of having coached four of Michigan's games, including two of their toughest this season, sometimes going in that direction doesn't always pay off. Uh, Larry Coker's probably the poster child for that. Larry Coker took over the Miami Hurricanes uh, in 2001. Now, you might say that Miami Hurricanes won the national championship in 2001. They absolutely did. But if you look at the roster they had, it almost seems like any competent head coach could have won a national championship with the sheer talent they had in Miami. And then after that, he petered out over four to five seasons and they eventually fired him because he just, as it turned out, as a head coach, he did not necessarily have the skills that he displayed as an offensive coordinator. Now, their rival school, Ohio State, promoted Ryan Day. And for all the crit criticalness that there is in his direction, I think he's doing a pretty good job with the Buckeyes. Certainly, this upcoming season is going to be the moment where he can truly prove himself and, and prove that he is is the man to be Ohio State's um, head coach and, and triumphant head coach and one that they should respect. But he's certainly another example of that. And then you only have to look back at uh, Jim Harbaugh's last head coaching job when he was in college. In Stanford, David Shaw succeeded him and continued for a while at least uh, success for Stanford football. It didn't quite sort of again um, didn't continue indefinitely, but I have to say the first several years, David Shaw proved that he wasn't the Larry Coker of Stanford. He proved that he could continue a level of success that is difficult for the restrictions that the Cardinal have um, as an institution. But let's say Michigan decides not to go 
with more. Let's say they decide to go outside of the box, maybe look outside. Who are some of the possible candidates? There have been names thrown around. Again, I don't know how much how much I put into these names. And, and at the time this is recording, who knows, in a couple of minutes later, we could find that they've announced that they are going in a different direction, although there is that seven-day period. We'll see. Uh, Kansas State head coach Lance Leipold has been mentioned. He seems to be coming up anytime an upper Midwest coaching vacancy comes open. But there's a good reason. I mean, he's from the area. He was part of that incredible two-team dynasty in Division Three, where both his Wisconsin Whitewater and Mount Union were winning the only national championships for 11 of 12 seasons in Division Three, And clearly what he's built at Kansas shows that he can do a lot. And imagine giving him the keys to a much more talented uh, team. That might be a payoff. So he could be one. Um, Kansas State's Chris Kleiman, clearly he was successful at North Dakota State. He's built Kansas State into a strong team. He's just one of those names that always seems to come up. You know, there's a couple of coordinators in the NFL. Baltimore Ravens offensive coordinator Todd Monken has coached with, uh, has actually coached against Jim Harbaugh and, and uh, was the part of that that Georgia team that that smashed him in the uh, the college football playoff. And coincidentally, he was against the current uh, Ravens defensive coordinator, Mike McDonald, um, who is also someone who's coached with Jim Harbaugh. And both of them, of course, now coach for his brother. So they would be potential hires that would also theoretically somewhat get what's going on. Um, I'm going to kind of really quickly breeze through some of the others. Some people brought up Ohio State head coach Matt Campbell. Again, I'll say Matt Campbell's strength is you have to remember how terrible Iowa State was. Um, historically. Um, so to even get them to where they are now is is tremendous, but he hasn't really proved himself at the elite level kind of team you'd want to see him do if a team like Michigan were to give him a hire. Brian Kelly would fit, but I don't think he's leaving LSU. I think he went to LSU with a, an eye on winning from the SEC base. He's done a lot to improve the coaching staff there in this offseason um, to try and strengthen that defense. I think that would be an extremely unlikely call. Some have talked, <laughs> have tossed out Wisconsin head coach. A couple of sources have tossed out Luke Fickle. I think that's his agent putting his name into that mix because while he's the head coach of Wisconsin, um, obviously he was successful at Cincinnati. This last season wasn't all that great for the Badgers. And again, I, I just don't see that. Uh, I don't see that happening for that. And similarly, I've seen Wake Forest head coach Dave Clawson tossed out there. While again, winning at Wake Forest is a bit like winning at Iowa State. It's a tough job. It's an interesting way to do it. I, I don't think they're serious candidates. I think ultimately in the end, I think it is Sharon Moore's job to lose. We'll see. There's a lot coming up. This has been an exciting offseason for the last couple of weeks. That's all I got to say. But I think we'll go ahead and wrap this one up. Wanted to thank all of you for listening. Wanted to thank my producer, Joey Alberti, who's patient with me, especially as I... Uh, have my own issues in and off, starting and stopping the show when I keep mispronouncing names. I wanted to ask you to, if you get a chance, be sure to like, rate, and subscribe wherever you get to your podcasts. Uh, you can find us on X and TikTok at the CFB Survivor Show. Shahan's not here right now, but you can find his work on CBSSports.com and at Shahan J. Raja on X and TikTok. We wish him well. New fatherhood is always fun. It's always exciting and always quite tiring. I'm Bobby Kairi. You can find me as part of the team that runs RCFB on at Reddit CFB on Twitter. It's always a great time talking to you. We'll get back to you later. Have a great one, everyone. The College Football Survivor Show, where playoff survival is always on the line.